Welcome back to the program. As the recent kerfuffle at the New York Times has shown, gender issues still impact the workplace of even the most public and apparently tolerant of companies. Perhaps in seeing that and so many other examples, we might realize that we are approaching these issues in the wrong way. That diversity is not just about numbers or quotas and expecting everyone to be the same. Homogenization is not diversity. Just as being forced to lean in is not about recognizing one's own strength, but about mimicking the strength of others. We still need to learn that while overall acceptance is important, diversity lies not in one size fits all, but in celebrating differences and taking full advantage of the different intelligences that different individuals and different genders bring to the workplace. We're going to talk about this today with my guest Barbara Annis and Keith Marin. Barbara's the founder and CEO of Barbara Annis and Associates. She's advocated the value and practice of gender intelligence in Fortune 500 companies and numerous organizations worldwide. She is chair emeritus of the Women's Leadership Board at Harvard's Kennedy School. And Keith Marin is a senior associate with Barbara Annis and Associates. He's an organizational and executive development specialist with more than 30 years consulting experience. He received his doctorate from Harvard and is the author of four previous books. It is my pleasure to welcome Barbara Annis and Keith Marin here to talk about gender intelligence, breakthrough strategies for increasing diversity and improving your bottom line. Barbara, Keith, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank I'm you. Delighted. Great to have you. I want to start with you, Barbara, and talk a little bit about this idea that, that in many ways we have looked at diversity in the workplace as a way to bring different people under the umbrella, but at the same time expect them all to be the same or act the same way or carry the same intelligence with them. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so what's so interesting to me is that when you look at gender equality, you know, we've been, uh, with the best of intentions, really wanting to create equality in the workplace, but what we actually have created um, is a, a sense of sameness. So, uh, you know, I was working recently in Berlin for a large company, a European company, who said, oh, you can't talk about differences. You know, we've been working on gender equality for so long, and, you know, anything women can do, men can do, so let's not go there. And that's the kind of enlightened, what I call enlightened denial that we created, is that, you know, we, we have created this fit-in model on sameness. And, Keith, what is this costing us in terms of not really having the full advantage of diverse points of view and diverse ways of looking at the world and the workplace? Well, it's, it's, in, in short, it's costing innovation. It's costing creativity. It's costing us um, uh, expanded problem-solving capability. It, it's a business consequence. This is why we found that, um, there's a direct correlation between organizations that have greater gender diversity and a greater bottom line. In this day and age, as you know, innovation is crucial for staying ahead of the curve, staying ahead of the competition of being more effective in the workplace. So, so organizations that have that diversity are much, much more effective um, and achieve greater results. And organizations that don't, they fit the mold of sameness, which 50 years ago might have been uh, the source of success, but no longer in this day and age. Are you finding, Barbara, that the obstacles are internal or external? In other words, are the problems, the movements themselves towards equality and greater sameness in the workplace, the outside forces, or are the problems mistakes being made inside companies? Well, it's actually a combination of both, but we certainly do cultural diagnostic inside companies, and we've seen that there are some invisible 
barriers, assumptions that are being made with regards to why women are advancing and, and why we operate on, based on sameness. Um, so it's first to really look at those cultural norms and creating breakthroughs around them. There's also some other research that we see when we do this, what we call self-imposed limitations. And, you know, often companies make assumptions as to why women are advancing that are actually false. So we dispel those assumptions. And part of co-authoring this book is to really bring that, those insights uh, to the wider population. And what are, Barbara, some of those wrong assumptions? Yeah, for example, and we hear this all the time, is that, you know, there's this assumption that women don't excel because of work-life balance issues, or they leave because of work-life balance issues. And every time we do a diagnostic, we see something very different. And what we see is that, yes, do women and men have work-life balance issues? Absolutely. But it's not what causes, what blocks women or what causes women to vote with their feet. It's more around understanding how to navigate you know, the, the senior leadership, sort of the hierarchy, and feeling valued, feeling valued for your, bringing your authentic self to the workplace. The fact that I bring diversity of thinking, different strengths, and is that encouraged and valued. Keith, talk a little bit about companies where this has, that have gotten it right, companies where this has worked well, this sense of diversity. Well, you know, there there are not that many. Interestingly, we've um, we have this little continuum that we use that uh, uh, helps us kind of get a gauge as to where a company's at, and we often ask them to self self score where do they see themselves at along this continuum. And the, the far right of the continuum, we give it a five, is is a company that's genuinely inclusive, and there are so few. Um, one of the few that we've uh, worked with that we're very very impressed with and uh, inspired by is American Express. And uh, they they have um, a number of norms, a number of practices in their company that are evidence of this. One of them is that the leadership will often say, we won't make decisions unless we have somewhat of a balanced leadership between men and women because we know that the decisions are better. So if they're in a room with five men and no women, they won't necessarily make a decision. They'll say, wait a sec, we need to get a woman's perspective. Or if there's a, a group with uh, five women, they will they will invite the opposite gender. So, so that's one company that we've we've been impressed with. They have greater balance at all levels, and they have a deep abiding commitment. And then we know of another number of other companies uh, that are on the path. Uh, wouldn't necessarily say there are five. They wouldn't necessarily say there are five, but they would say they're they're getting there. You talk about it, Keith, in terms of gender diversity, and that's the the core of the book. But are you finding similar trends with respect to other kinds of diversity and other kinds of differences within workplaces? And are these issues playing themselves out in similar ways? Uh, yes and no. Um, uh, there is a direct correlation in our experience between gender diversity and diversity in general. That is that companies that get gender diversity are, on average, much more expansive about diversity as a whole they develop a mindset and a way of working through the gender intelligence that they acquire and develop that honors and values all people very naturally and, and honors and values the contribution. So, so without a doubt, uh, we see it elsewhere. Where I would say not so much, and this becomes a very interesting conversation, is that uh, diversity of race or diversity of other differences don't necessarily translate into diversity of thinking. It translates into a more open environment, to be sure, and, and a welcoming of all people. But gender 
and differences in brain function between men and women um, are, are uh, there's research that shows some natural differences between men and women in terms of the brain function, but there's no research that shows natural differences between races, for example, in terms of brain functioning. So it doesn't necessarily cause a major change in the organizational outcomes. What about, Barbara, in terms of point of view, socioeconomic diversity and differences in thinking that result from that? Well, I certainly see that if you look at your marketplace and your consumer, if you're a consumer company, like Keith mentioned, American Express, they do look at the cultural piece of it as well. Uh, but, you know, in terms of, you know, Hispanic, African-American, et cetera, in terms of the values and, and um, you know, the differences there culturally. Um, but I also want to go back to Keith's point is that, you know, we, when we go to look at diversity, we, we start forgetting about gender. And that's actually when we need to think about gender even more. Because the differences between men and women in different cultural contexts um, it impacts men and women differently, and the challenges are different. I'll give an example. We often do research around African-American men and women. You know, around mentoring, training, and guidance, we find that women, African-American women, score mentoring and guidance much lower than the African-American men. And if we don't have that lens, you know, we're not going to be able to understand that through the gender intelligence concept. Talk a little bit about what kind of pushback you've seen to this, Barbara, in terms of people who really celebrate this kind of diversity we started out talking about and want to see everyone treated equally and expects everyone to be the same. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we don't actually get a lot of pushback. We, we tend, I'm Danish, if you're an accent, that's <laughs> what it is. And I, so I do a lot of work in, in with CEOs in Denmark and in the last uh, couple of years, and we just did a CEO uh, roundtable about a month ago, and they are now getting their head around it because the science of it is so indisputable that you can't just say, oh, you know, let's not go there. We can't look at these differences. It's not politically correct. Uh, they're actually beginning to see not only is it politically correct, it's a business imperative, you know, the fact that we really need to move from you know, great minds think alike to great minds think unalike. And the diversity of thinking that men and women bring in teams and in leadership, um, in, in problem solving, in consequential thinking is really powerful and important. So, and the fact that you can actually see progress in those areas is really important. When you look at it in the context of something like what we've seen play out over the past week at the New York Times, for example, how do you see these issues being part of those problems? This is a classic. So there's two things that are happening there, right? One is that Jill Abramson was part of a culture, you know, of, you know, publishing culture, which has, a, especially in the editing kind of culture, I've done a lot of work in that area, where there are certain behaviors that can be, challenging, you know, they challenge each other, they debate, they go back and forth, etc. So that's a cultural phenomenon. But what's also happening with her is, is that she adopted some of those behaviors. And this is sameness behaviors, by the way, you know, this is how we are around here, right? I mean, I had a chief editor in London not too long ago, man, I'll call him Ralph, <laughs> right? Um, you know, and, and I did a 360 leadership assessment on him. And it was appalling. I mean, the way he was Treating his peers, his direct reports, uh, was really, so I was talking to his, the CEO of this paper and I said, you know, he, this guy needs coaching 
and the CEO said, well, you know, Ralph, that's Ralph. Ralph when Ralph is under stress, he just explodes, right? But he's a brilliant editor. He's like the best of the best of the breed, right? So we justify their results based on their behavior. What's happening with Jill is that she's getting that added scrutiny, right? And she's a woman, right? And she's the first woman ever, right? So that, that's, that magnifying glass is there. And she exhibited some of those behaviors, and she got truly penalized uh, on it, rather than Ralph, where everybody kind of just danced with his behavior. That didn't happen. A mutiny occurred for her. How much of this has to do, Barbara, with the language that we use around these issues? Well, I mean, if we look at the New York Times or just language in general, I think language is a very important thing to, to be aware of and to make sure that... You, I mean, you can, you can challenge people's point of view. You can debate. You can do all of those things, and they can enjoy the journey or enjoy the ride with the language that you use, Right. So I really think the power of language and using inclusive and empowering language and still have disagreements is really a big piece of the work that Keith and I do. I just want to add, I would agree um, wholeheartedly, and language is a reflection of our consciousness. So too often what happens is organizations, they focus on, well, let's just change our language. Let's learn different language. And they don't go deeper to look at, well, what is the culture, the norms, expectations, and our consciousness that creates that language, it's when we look deeper at our assumptions and beliefs that cause the language that we now have a possibility of really shifting it. Keith, talk a little bit about how women see these issues when you go into companies and talk about these things that we've been talking about here, and and talk about essentially celebrating difference, appreciating difference in, in thought processes and everything else. How do women generally deal with that within companies? Well, I'd, my experience is that the women have, um, almost without exception, are extraordinarily welcoming of us coming in and uh, working with them. And th- that, that the leaders of the company, men or women, would say, this matters and this matters a lot, mm-hmm. uh, is a breath of fresh air for the women. Not necessarily for all the men, but the women who have been feeling these issues, feeling uh, disregarded, feeling out, um, not included, feeling dismissed for so long, and in subtle and not so subtle ways, to finally have an opportunity to raise them, talk about them, and actually potentially make a shift in them is, uh, with, with almost without exception, completely welcome. Not so much with the men. But, Barbara, in a way, it's, it's saying that there, there are differences, in fact, in the way people think and the way people approach issues, the way women approach issues. Yeah. And in some ways, you could imagine a pushback to that. Well, you know, I mean, we started 27 years ago, and there, there was definitely pushback then. But the business case is so compelling now that, that it, it is just, you know, when you have a greater gender balance and gender intelligence at, the, at various teams, you produce better results. I mean, that's just, you know, nobody's going to refute that, right? Um, so I, I really see a shift. I mean, I was just talking what, to Disney yesterday and GE and some other companies who are actually stepping up and saying, we want to be a general intelligence company. So it's becoming more of, of sort of the, this business imperative conversation versus, oh, no, we just need to get two more women here and three more here and we're good, right? Become, it has for a very, very long time been a numbers game versus really a compelling business 
imperative, right? And we've moved to that now. So the opening of really encouraging and being willing to have these conversations is really quite huge today. And yet, Barbara, when you look at something like Lean In and, and the attention that Sheryl Sandberg has gotten to the things she's written about, it, yep. it's in some ways it runs counter to what we're talking about. You know, Cheryl and I have been in conversations about that. Um, and I actually, there is gender intelligence in her book. I mean, there's, 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 a, there's a paradox, right? Because we have been telling women, I mean, I'm just going to give you a quick example because I think sure. it's a powerful one. So I was in, the first woman in sales at Sony when I started my career. And the first year, and I was very successful, and the first year they sent me to San Francisco for a assertiveness training for women called Guerrilla War Tactics, Guerrilla War Tactics for Women in Business. And it taught me all the alpha, alpha male way of behaving. And I took it back to Sony, and it just flopped for me. It was not very, it did not empower me or others to apply that. But that's what we've been doing. We've been doing more subtly now, you know, more about either leaning in or suck it up and just be like one of the guys, be one of the boys. And, you know, we have this first woman syndrome. And Jill, back to New York Times, Maybe one of those, the first woman syndrome who said, you know what, I had to suck it up, I had to scratch and claw my way to the top, you know what I mean, and being the only woman. Um, and that is not working for women who are the first like I was, or for women who look at women who have taken on that behavior. They say, I don't see a role model, I don't see, you know, the, 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 the authentic mentor up there, Right. Keith, talk a little bit about what you're seeing with respect to generational change and how younger generations are looking at these issues. I think younger generations um, have a strong desire to be included, yeah. and uh, more so than, let's say, 30 or 40 years ago, when there was a sense of uh, each generation having their own place in life. Much more respect for the uh, elder generation and what they're doing. And, um, uh, and part of that is because the culture and, and, and historical climate in, in throughout history was fairly known, fairly predictable, fairly understandable. So if, I wanna, if I'm 25 and I want to learn to be successful, I look at those people who are 50 and have been successful in the same climate and I want to copy them. So there's more of a respect. Now, fast forward to this day and age where there's enormous amount of change and turbulence in the, the workplace and in the world, innovation and change become the marker of success. And therefore, copying those that have been before us won't necessarily cause us to be successful in the future. So that respect for the elder is giving way to a younger generation and very um, uh, high expectations of being included and driving the new wave of change. So you see this higher emphasis, higher desire for inclusion in general, and therefore higher appreciation for the value of inclusion as a whole. So I would say a little more gender intelligent and a little more diversity intelligent in the younger generation, not to mention the social mores that have changed over time, that have uh, the younger generation of, of work, uh, people in the workplace are more uh, on average um, diversity intelligent, if you will. Uh, and culturally intelligent. That said, we still see, interestingly, a fair bit of lack of gender intelligence. We still see some of the same assumptions that our forefathers and foremothers had about men and women and and uh, uh, being the same or should be treated the same, and or we see the the opposite assumptions of of uh, 
a division of labor between men and women. We see it copied in the younger generation to some extent. I'm, I'm curious Barbara's point of view about this. I was going to say, Barbara, what, what was your experience with this, and why do you think that this degree of change, this sense of diversity and in gender intelligence that we've been talking about, has not filtered down as much as one would think to a younger generation? Well, I mean, I think that socialization, as, as Keith pointed out, plays out that, uh, you know, Younger men and women have been socialized differently, and most of them have had mothers who worked as well as fathers, dual career couples, and they've had that direct experience, right? But what Keith is also referring to is that there is a bit of a denial, too, around the younger generation, around gender intelligence, because they'll say things like, wait a minute, you know, there were more women in my graduate school class than there were men, right? So I'm gender intelligent. Right, so they're still looking at it in terms of numbers, right? Versus, is there really a difference here? And what difference does difference make, right? So when we do the workshops and we deliver that, you know, it's a real aha moment for the younger generation as well. And I mean, and I was just with a, a technology company, young technology company, one in Dallas and one in Copenhagen, and we started the workshop. And the women, I was showing some research around what challenges women feel and it was this sense of what Keith mentioned about being excluded or dismissed or feeling that you know the real meeting after the meeting they're not invited to and so on and some of the younger men turned to the women and said do you really buy into that is that really true is that really true right and um, the women all nodded right but it's just not apparent for the men because of the socialization they don't see some of those potential blind spots right so it's it's still there. I mean, there's equal learning for all of us. I learn every day. You know, this is an ongoing journey of learning about these differences. In order to continue making these changes, is it going mm-hmm. to continue to have to happen externally, or is are we going to have to continue to look at the culture differently and socialization differently? Or is this something that business can essentially do on its own internally and push the message out? I love that question. So I actually think that business can do this on their own and push it out. However, they need to begin to have a critical mass of people, men and women, right, who have a deep understanding of gender intelligence, how it impacts how you recruit people, how you interview people, how you assess people. You know, there are, there are some really critical blind spots that uh, men and women have inside organizations around assessing and recruiting and really looking at top talent. So I would say, yes, can you do it internally? Do you have some kind of external force to really push and deepen the learning? Yes. Can you then take it on and then build that internal capability inside? Yes, that would be both Keith and and my dream to be able to empower that. Barbara Annis, Keith Marin. The book is Gender Intelligence, Breakthrough Strategies for Increasing Diversity and Improving Your Bottom Line. Barbara, Keith, I thank you both for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.